City Life welcome as he comes. Thank you. Good morning. It's always an honor to preach here at City Life, but it's especially an honor on Father's Day weekend because there's so many incredible fathers that call City Life home. And it's always an honor, too, to share a pulpit with Pastor Fred and Pastor Jamie, two incredible fathers in their own right. So for them to say, Juice, we want you to speak on Father's Day, it, it means a lot. Um, but I get to speak every week, like he said, or Vanessa said at Revolution Church. And when I speak on relationships and godly principles for relationships, I can always point to my wife. And usually what I'll tell the kids is, look, I've beat the game, right? I rescued my princess. I can give you the cheat codes, the biblical principles about godly relationships that can lead you through a godly relationship to a God-honoring marriage. So, but this morning, I come to you as, as a youth pastor, like Pastor Fred said. But one of the reasons I'm in youth ministry and one of the reasons Steph and I are in the process of adoption, one of the reasons that Lord willing we'll be a mother and father of our own kids one day is because we believe, like it says in the Bible, even though our culture sometimes debates it, that in Psalm 127 verse 3 it says, children are a blessing from the Lord. And we believe that. And that's why parenting is imperative. And that's why I would honor and I have so much respect for every father and mother that's here this morning. But because it's Father's Day, we give fathers a special nod. Because when you look at mothers and fathers, they parent differently, right? Dads play differently. We get a little rough. We encourage differently. We discipline differently. We communicate differently. We just do it different. So every father in here should be able to realize that no other man on earth could step into your role in your family and do what you do. You're priceless. There's no debating that. But there's also no debating, as Pastor Fred reminded us, that no father's perfect. Thank goodness we've got a heavenly father that's perfect. But, but no dad is perfect. They say by the time you're about to get the hang of it, you're already done. Your kid's going off to college. They're moving out of the house. By the time you're finally, all right, I, I might be able to do this, right? And for every time you lose your temper, you put a diaper on backwards, or you forget to pick your kid up from school, you can always look at fathers, even heroes from the Bible who have some worse examples. Like you look at Hosea, an Old Testament prophet, he named his daughter the Hebrew equivalent of unloved. Like if you've named your daughter Helga and she's going by her middle name now just because of that, there's grace for you. There's grace for you. <laughs> Noah got drunk off his own grapes, naked apparently, passed out in his tent with the door unlocked and his, all his sons saw him in his birthday suit, right? Joseph, the father of Jesus, misplaces the Messiah for four days. Twelve-year-old Jesus. I get upset and frustrated when I misplace my keys for four minutes. Yet that was four days. But you look at these three men. Hosea was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Noah saved humanity, right? Joseph was chosen by God to father Jesus. So hopefully you can look at those stories and others in the Bible and say, you know what? I'm doing all right, and God can use me. Yeah. And again, you guys are doing priceless work as fathers. And none of those stories are to say that God has a low view of children or youth or the next generation. Matter of fact, in Psalm 127, verse 4, right after verse 3, it says that like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And I like that verse because it means that as mothers and as fathers and as parents and potential parents like myself, we all have a little warrior in us. A little William Wallace if you're a man, a little Xena warrior princess if you're a woman, right? <laughs> Joan of Arc, whatever the example might be. And it's written by a warrior king. It's written by David. So this is the David who, as a young shepherd boy, would run after lions and bears in defense of his sheep. This is a David who, again, as a teenager, ran headlong at a giant in defense of his nation. 
But this is also the same David that as a father, he shrunk back in his own home when it came time to parent. You know, passiveness has crippled men since the Garden of Eden when Adam sat back and watched Eve take a bite of the forbidden fruit. And we see with David that passiveness didn't cripple him on the battlefield. Passiveness didn't cripple him on the throne. But passiveness crippled him in his own home. You can turn to 2 Samuel 13. We're not going to read it all this morning. It's a long passage, but this is like a parenting horror story. If Sports Center ever had a not top 10 for parenting, this would take number one. And if, if I was to give it a heading, it would be Amnon, Absalom, and Absentee Parenting. And when you look at this passage, Amnon is the half-brother of Tamar, his sister. And he has the, the hots for her. And he wants to get in her presence, so he pretends to be sick. And, and David sends Tamar to, to wait on him as he asks. And as soon as he gets alone with Tamar, he forces himself upon her. He rapes her. So, understandably, David is angry. But for two years, maybe because he felt guilty for sending Tamar, maybe because he was being downright passive, he did nothing to punish Amnon. So after two years, Tamar's blood brother, Absalom, sees that nothing is going to be done to punish Amnon. So he does it himself. He murders him, has him murdered. And then he flees. And this is a son that David loved. It said that while Absalom had fled and he was gone for three years, that David longed to see his face. But never once did he send for him. Never once did he go to him. Again, maybe he felt guilty. Maybe he was waiting for him to make the first move. Or maybe he was just being passive. But for three years, the, the resentment that was in Absalom was able to, to boil up and boil over to where when he finally came back, there was a rebellion that cost Israel. And when David's officer, Joab, finally goes to great lengths to bring Absalom back, it says it's two full years before he saw David's face. Those are crazy stories to consider, especially when it's David who's the father. The same David who wrote Psalms, the same David who it says in 1 Samuel was a man after God's own heart, the same David who was one of the greatest kings of the Old Testament, yet as a father, some of his arrows missed the mark. But that doesn't mean that what he said wasn't true. That children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And when we look at the case of his sons, and he had many sons, these are just a couple. And when we look at the fact that the Greek word for sin means missing the mark, you begin to realize that as fathers, as parents, we have a sacred responsibility and duty to help our kids hit the mark. Every kid has a purpose, a destiny, and a calling. And as fathers, we can help determine their velocity, we can help determine their trajectory. And there will be moments, circumstances in life that are out of our control. Come on, when you shoot an arrow, there will be wind, there might be rain, there might be anything that might try to make that arrow miss its mark. And in your child's life, when they leave your home, there are circumstances that will be out of your control. There are wind and elements that come in the form of tragedies or circumstance, but every good warrior knows that there are parts of an arrow that no matter what, help it stay the course. This is more of a, a Daryl Dixon arrow than it is a sitting bull, right? This has the, uh, this one's made of plastic and rubber back here, but a lot of times back in, you know, Last of the Mohicans, these pieces back here would be feathers, and they're called furthing, or excuse me, fletching. Sorry, I'm learning it myself. They're pieces of fletching. You put it on the back of the arrow, around the back on the circumference, and what it does is it helps the arrow, aerodynamically, stay on the course you fire it at even in wind, even in rain. And biblically and spiritually, there are pieces of fletching that you can impart on your sons and daughters so that when, you leave your, when they leave your home, when they go out into the world, that they can stay the course. 
Just like it says in Proverbs, you, you teach them the way to go and they won't depart from it, that they'll hit their mark. And if they do miss the mark, let it be due to circumstances and conditions outside of your control and not the condition of your parenting. And again, you look at the condition of David's parenting, and these two sons we looked at in 2 Samuel 13, they didn't even make it out of their youth. And these are just a couple of many of his sons, and none of them have happy endings. I think I maybe did a half dozen at the men's retreat, but I want to look at three this morning. Three of his sons. This arrow here has three pieces on the back of fletching. So I want to look at three principles that we can take from his sons to help us as fathers, to let our children hit their mark. And the first is the Amnon principle. Am I protecting my child from sexual temptation? Now, from what we already reviewed in 2 Samuel 13, none of us would raise our hands and like, yep, yeah, I want to raise myself an Amnon. Nobody would. I remember I was at William & Mary just down the road as a senior when I first started following Christ, and I had never read through the Bible before, and I was going to Christian Life Center right up the road, the church that planted us, and I was in a service one Sunday, and I was just talking to a younger kid, and he was like, yeah, my parents don't let me read the Old Testament. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, really? Your parents are crazy. But then I started reading the Bible, and I get to passages like this, and I realize why. It involves rape. It's, it's, it's rated R. Like, it's intense. And none of us would set out to raise an Amnon. But when we don't apply the principle of protecting our kids as best we can, from sexual temptation, we can do it unknowingly. Some parents unknowingly enable Amnons by leaving an open door to sexual temptation. How, you might ask? Well, a lot of parents leave an open door to whatever's out there on the internet. And there's, it just blows my mind. I'm a youth pastor, our kids come into the youth ministry when they're 12 years old, it blows my mind how many have unlimited, unrestricted internet access with zero accountability. And I, I understand the reason for the phone. It's for safety. You want to be able to call your kid at any time, know where they are. You want them to be able to call you. But spiritually, it's unsafe to hand to our kid unlimited, unrestricted Internet access. I've had too many conversations with young men and young women, whether it involves pornography or other things, just situations they've got into through the Internet, and too many conversations with parents who have no idea what they're doing with the Internet that they provide. We just have to be smart about the Internet and realize that it's no longer a vending machine where we have to go and look for sexuality. It's, it's a door-to-door -door salesman. It finds you when you're out there. And it's way bigger than just Internet access. Here's a quote to chew on. I got part of it I'll put on the screen. I got the whole thing here. And I'll talk about who said it in a minute. But it says, in the Internet age, our children are turning to online porn for an alternative sex education. The worst place they can go. Now listen to this. He says, the brain's reward center is fully developed by the time we're teenagers. But the part of the brain that regulates our urges, the prefrontal cortex, isn't fully developed until our mid-20s. The brains of teenagers aren't wired to say stop. They are wired to want more. So if porn does have the insidious power to be addictive, then letting our children consume it freely via the Internet is like leaving heroin lying around the house or handing out vodka at the school gates. Ultimately, the responsibility lies with us, the parents. The age of innocence is over, so we have to fight back. We need to be tech-savvy, and as toe-curling as it seems, we are the first generation that will have to talk to our children about porn. This is quite the battle cry, quite a, a rallying call. And, and maybe it sounds like something that a pastor said from a pulpit, kind of sounds like something focused on the family would release, right? James Dobson would have said that. But this is actually said by a former editor of a British lads mag. That's just British slang for a soft porn magazine. 
And he used to go to universities to debate in favor of pornography, that it was harmless. So what would cause a 180 to cause him to write something like this? He had a son. He became a father. And when you become a father, you can no longer be ignorant, you can no longer be passive, and you can no longer just shrug your shoulders and say, well, what's the worst that could happen? And to his credit, he was not a passive parent. He actually went out to some of these same universities where he used to debate in favor of porn, and he did some surveys just with kids. He brought together 20, 13, and 14-year-old boys and girls. Come on, kids getting their first pimples, boys whose voices are still sky high, little girls that are still learning how to apply their makeup, and it shows, right? He brings them into a room, and he just asks them, A to Z, write down some sexual terms you know. And they wrote down some words that the sex ed teacher that was with them didn't even recognize. And they asked him, where did you see this? And he said, Facebook. One of the boys did. And it just blew his mind. So we asked him, what, on a scale of 1 to 10, what are the chances that a kid your age is looking at porn? And he said there was a chorus of 9s and 10s and 1 8. So his mind was blown. So we did another survey with 80 kids, 12 to 16, and got the same results. And I don't tell you this is a scare tactic. I'm not saying to go home and talk to your grade schooler about pornography. I'm not saying your 16-year-old son is out there fishing for it. But again, it's no longer a, a vending machine. A couple generations ago, you'd have to go digging for it. You'd have to go looking for it. Nowadays, it's a door-to-door salesman. You get on the internet, and there's pop-ups, there's ads. There's just all kinds of crazy stuff. So I just want to encourage you guys just with quick, uh, three quick steps in terms of this piece of fletching on an arrow and in terms of this principle. The first is simply get familiar. Connect. If, if your kid is on, there's so many apps. I try to keep up. Even as a youth pastor, it's hard. Last night, Steph had to remind me of, what is it, Kick? Is that how you pronounce it? It's like K-I-K. I don't even know if it's Kick or Keek, right? There's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. Am I forgetting any? <laughs> Got to look at the youth, make sure I'm, I'm staying current, right? There's so many of them. And in, in and of themselves, they're not evil apps. I'm on all but one of those, right? But you got to realize when broken people get on that, that they can be broken. You know, we, we, we joke about the idea of Twitter followers and Facebook friends and the fact they're called friends, right? I have over 1,000 Facebook friends. But I have way more in real life, closer to 10 friends, than I ever will have 1,000 friends. It's, it's a joke that it's called, you know, friends. But... The same way that friends can derail your destiny to just to update Paul's letter to Corinth, the wrong contacts can corrupt good character. You know, when I graduated from William and Mary, I had a ton of Facebook friends, you know, as, again, as a senior is when I started following Christ. So I, I'm still friends with them. I can still send them messages. They can still see what I post, but I've hid. You can hide stuff from your timeline from people just because they post stuff there that I don't want to see, to look at, to let into my spirit. So you just got to realize that what are they on? Right? Snapchat and Instagram, you've got the ability now on Instagram to send direct messages. Snapchat, people love the spontaneity because you can send pictures and within one to ten seconds they disappear, unless you take a screenshot, of course, or, or one to ten seconds. There's, there's no repercussions. So you can imagine where that can lead some teenagers. And again, the popular page on my Instagram, they show pictures of stuff you've liked or similar to stuff you've liked, but they also show stuff that's popular in your country. And you can imagine some of the stuff that's popular in my country that I don't want to see. And again, just know what they're on and realize that it's no longer a vending machine. They no longer have to go looking for it. So be familiar. Connect. And the step two is just set boundaries. Protect them. This seems like common sense, but if your son or daughter is on a social media network, if they're on Facebook, be their friend. If they're on Twitter, follow them. Seems like common sense, but there are parents that I've talked to that aren't connected. 
Sometimes they just don't care. Sometimes their own child has them blocked on Twitter. And then they're on Twitter talking about their parents who are providing their cell phone and providing their internet. One kid once was like, my parents never give me anything. I'm like, they probably gave you this computer you're typing on. And they're providing the internet that you are saying this on. It's funny. So you would think that's common sense. But just be their friend. If your child, son or daughter, thinks that their social network and the internet is, is their world where they don't need accountability, then take it away until they grow up. And I realize there's kickback. Like Pastor Fred was talking about camp. Every year at camp, we're up in the middle of Pennsylvania, not close to anything, in Amish country. There's horses and buggies, right? There's no Wi-Fi, and there's no phones allowed. And we respect that rule. But kids always show up with phones, and I always have my ways of weeding them out. <laughs> and you take a phone away from a kid, and they develop everything short of like a nervous twitch. There's like cold sweats. They're like, man, can I just check, check my Twitter, right? And I'm like, dude, this is a great fast for you <laughs> to, to unplug. But that's even clinically proven that 66% of people suffer from clinical fear when they're separated from their phone. So I'm not saying, well, maybe a fast is appropriate if your kid breaks out in a cold sweat just talking about taking their phone away. But I'm not saying take their phone away. I'm not saying strip them of their internet. But set boundaries and set up some accountability. There's great programs for that you can put on a smart device that you can put on computers. Just a few of them. X3 Watch. Covenant Eyes is a good one. Pastor Fred uses MobaSip on his kids' smart devices. But you can just Google accountability software. And there's so many of them that you can use. But I just encourage you, look into that. And then set boundaries. Set boundaries. It might look different for different families. Maybe you would just say no phones at the dinner table. Maybe you would say when you go to bed, leave your phone on the charger. There's not a lot that kids tweet after midnight that you as a parent would want to retweet. Trust me. But I don't know what it would look like for you. But get creative. Be realistic. And then lastly, explain why. You know, when your toddler says to you why, you just tell them because I'm your father. And I said so. And you obey me. Right? When your 16 or 17-year-old says why, you can repeat those exact same words, but then there's an opportunity to teach. There's an opportunity to explain. In conversations with sexuality, I think sometimes we as parents see all that Nike has done with just do it, and we think that just don't do it is enough. But I'm a part of a generation that was told just don't do it, and we did it anyways. These are some conversations that I wish people would have had with me when I was 16 or 18 years old. Some of these conversations are very age-specific. But it wasn't until I was 25 or 26 that I heard Pastor Fred finally break down this idea that God created your brain with a, a pleasure center, scientifically proven, where you were created to have the best sexual experience with one person in a monogamous relationship for your whole life. And everything outside of that sexually just muddies that imprint. I didn't know that until I was 25, 26 years old. I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 16 or 18. Right? And again, these are age-specific conversations, but they're ones that need to be had because that explains the why. And it can teach. And if you've never heard anything like that, Pastor Fred years ago recommended this book to me. It's called Sex, Men, and God. It's by Doug Weiss. And I would recommend it for any man, any mother of a son, any teenager. Just read this book. It explains so much wisdom. And that leads me to the second principle and the second piece of fletching this morning. And that is the Rehoboam principle. Am I disciplining my child to discern the voice of wisdom? And you might say, pause. That's David's grandson. You're cheating. But <laughs> this is the son of Solomon. Solomon was the heir to David. So David poured into him more than any of his sons. And this was the son of Solomon, the heir to the throne. So we would hope 
that Solomon poured into him. But if you look at his testimony, maybe he took a passive parenting approach like David did. Because you look at the story of Rehoboam, and in 1 Kings 12, you see that he has this decision to make that's going to shape his destiny, and not only his destiny, but the destiny of the entire nation. And because he couldn't recognize the voice of wisdom and discern what the right decision was, he didn't only derail his destiny and his life, the entire nation split into. There's consequences. And it's ironic, because this is the son of Solomon, right? The Bible says he was the most wise man of his generation. He wrote the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 7 and 8, it talks about a young man who's walking down the street and he's being seduced while wisdom cries out from the hilltop, don't do it. But this, his own son, couldn't recognize that voice of wisdom. He couldn't hear, heed, and discern the right choice. And we got to realize that youth and teenagers and kids, they make a lot of important choices that will shape their future. The relationships they establish, the passions they pursue, it all sets up their future. And we won't be there for a lot of them. Fathers, when your daughter goes on her first date, you might stand at the door with a weapon of your choice to intimidate. <laughs> but you're not going to go out with them on that date. You know, when your son goes to his first high school dance in the after party, you're not going to be there. When your son or daughter goes off to college, you'll be at home. And there will be moments where they had to make decisions where you're not there. But when you've taught them to discern wisdom and to test everything, you can relax, right? You can trust God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22 says, test everything. Keep what is good and stay away from everything that is evil. In this verse, it's speaking about prophecies in the church. But if you need to test everything that I say, that pastors in the church say, that people say from a pulpit, how much more should you test those voices out in the world from our culture that are saying, well, you should do this or you should do that? We need to teach our kids to discern, well, is this truly wisdom? In my generation and the one behind it, we can be so careless about our consumption of culture. And we got to realize that if an insecure teen sees something that's popular, they're going to immediately want to be in on it. You look at Rehoboam, right? He had two options to choose. These advisors, these old advisors that had served his father for years were giving him advice. And then he had his homeboys over here telling him to do this over here. And he felt a pressure to go with his peers. we got to realize that that pressure is real. And that for a lot of teenagers, discerning the voice of wisdom and testing what's wise and what the wise decision is is sometimes the furthest thing from their mind. So we have to remind them. We have to teach them that purity is bigger than sex and what you let, who you let into your bed. It's about what you let into your heart. And it's for this reason that Paul says to the church in Rome, be wise in what is good and simple in what is evil. And he doesn't say be ignorant in what is evil, don't know what's going on. But he says, be simple. You know, I have secular music on my iPod, and I've never told the kids at RC that they only have to listen to K-Love and K-Love only. Have I, Connor? Never. And I probably never will say that, right? But when I hear the 10th or 12th kid mention, mention that I woke up like this or I woke up in a new Bugatti, I'm going to be like, okay, what are they talking about? And I might do what I call an investigation and look up those lyrics and look up what they're listening to. But, you know, we can often use this idea of investigating as an excuse to indulge. And then you can become up wise in what is evil and simple in what is good. And Paul paints this bullseye for discernment and wisdom in 1 Corinthians 9, 21 through 23. This is the message version, but he says, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. 
I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. We've got to teach our kids that to be in on the gospel, you have to enter into their world. And when you enter into their world, that's not an opportunity for contamination. They shouldn't feel scared when they walk the halls of their school. They should have a confidence because you've taught them that they can walk with conviction and wisdom and discernment and have an influence on the world. They can be in on the gospel. There's a great quote by Rick Warren that says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that you, if you love someone, you must agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And that's a whole other sermon on tolerance. But tolerance doesn't mean giving up your convictions. It means you love people even if they don't share your convictions. And you can go out into the world and have an impact for Jesus Christ when you walk in wisdom and you walk with your convictions and you don't compromise. But we have to realize that as our kids learn discernment, we might have to discern with them, come alongside them and teach them discernment. I'm talking about movie, movies, music, media. Again, music. Do some investigating. If your kid goes off to concerts to different artists or they have their CDs, just look up some of their hits. Look up the lyrics. Look about what they're singing about. Some of the top 40 stuff on the radio sounds fun until you listen to the lyrics. I go to the gym at Crunch, and I had just showered. I was gearing up to leave, and some R. Kelly song came on. I didn't even know he was still making music. <laughs> but some R. Kelly song comes on, and I thought, like, I had to get back in the shower. It was, it was just filthy. It was so explicit. And this is the stuff that's on the radio. And we have to realize as parents that not everything our kids listen to is often stuff we want them to hear. And if it has your ear, it's going to have your heart. And then movies. There are so many great websites where you can read lengthy articles and lengthy reviews about movies and, and with the content that's in them without it spoiling the plot. But even if you've only got 10 seconds, you can go to internetmoviedatabase.com, imdb.com. That's where I always go. Last night, I was trying to remember if I'd ever seen Channing Tatum in a movie, so I was like, let me scroll through here. What movies was he in? But you can look up a movie, and you can look up the rating and why it was rated that. I had grown men in my living room once talking about how they had just seen this movie, and they're both relating with each other, like, yeah, and then there was that one scene. I had no idea it was coming. It was so awkward. I didn't know what to do, and I wanted to be like, are you serious? The ratings aren't just letters and numbers. They actually explain why it's rated that. Every commercial you see at the end, it says, oh, there's nudity. Oh, there's strong sexuality throughout. If it says that, then that's a good clue to me that I can wait. I can wait till it's on TV or never see it or it's an opportunity to fast forward, right? Or maybe, again, I don't ever want to see that. But just the idea that we have to discern, both for our kids and really for ourselves. Because a lot of this stuff is not just taught, it's caught. So what are we listening to? What are we watching? Because kids will follow your lead in discerning what you let speak into your life. And kids that don't learn to follow the voice of wisdom will follow the crowd. And that's when we see compromise. And that's when we see Rehoboams who derail their destiny. And there's consequences, which leads me to the third piece of fletching. The third principle is the Adonizer principle. Am I teaching my child the truth of consequence? Now, let me tell you, in the first months, the first year of youth ministry, I realized that one of the most freeing and, and frustrating things simultaneously was the fact that I can't make any decisions for the kids. They're going to ultimately make the decision. I feel sometimes like it's slow pitch softball. I'm throwing it as slow as I can right over the middle of the plate. And I'm just like swing the bat. It's like Casey at the bat. They're just standing there watching the balls go right by. 
And I realize as parenting, it's the same thing. You can't make decisions for your kid. And you, again, look at the Garden of Eden. And God set up standards. He set up rules for them to obey. And they did it anyways, right? He gave them free will so they were even able to disobey. And that was out of love. But, again, that's a sermon for another time. But when they disobeyed, right, he showed them grace. But then he gave them the consequences. And the, the fact they disobeyed was in spite of the fact that he gave them morals, right? Not because he didn't give them morals. You look at parenting, and you'll never be able to make the decisions for them, but we've got a double major to teach, one that involves morals and one that involves grace. Just because God is righteous and holy and just, and he's also gracious and merciful, and our leadership should reflect that. You know, some parents major in morals so much that it swings into authoritarianism, it swings into overprotectiveness to where it can cripple a child. But so often I see it swing so far the other directions, where let your kid make mistakes, it's great advice on the surface, but we can sometimes take that and use it as an excuse for passiveness. Sometimes the pendulum swings so far into what we think is grace that we forget to teach morals and consequence altogether. But the problem is that view completely ignores the reality of consequence and reciprocity. As we like to say at RC, you can ignore the commands, but you can't ignore the consequences. Again, Adam and Eve were free to ignore the commands. And when they did, God showed grace. But he also passed down consequences. There were morals. There was a bar that God set, and it had to be respected. Again, we have to teach a double major of grace and morals. And we have to teach our kids that when they're trying to strive for that bar of morals, that grace forgives them along the way. But that grace also gives us a call to grow. And that there's, there's consequences for when we decide wrong. And again, this, this quote, let your kids make mistakes. Sometimes we can use it and we, we want to look humble, but sometimes it's a cop-out to be passive. And David gives us all the warning we need about passive parenting. But I've had actual conversations with parents who have said, well, I'm just going to let them sow their wild oats, get it out of their system, maybe eventually they'll hit rock bottom. And like you see the prodigal son, right, they'll return to me. But that's not how it always works out. And it's a cute saying, but when you begin to reflect what Jesus says about reaping what you sow, it's not so cute anymore. Because what are wild oats? Essentially, they're weeds. And in Matthew 13, what does Jesus say about the weeds? He says, well, they're, they're taken up with the wheat, but then they're thrown into the fire. None of us would say about our kids, I'm letting them reap wild oats. So why would we say that we're letting them sow them? Because if we believe in consequence and reciprocity and we're teaching consequence and reciprocity to our kids, then it's dangerous. Look, your kids will make mistakes. They'll make their own mistakes. And as they grow, you have to give them freedom. But let that be in spite of your active parenting, not because of passive parenting. Again, Pastor Fred said it before, don't lower the bar to your child. Raise your child to that bar. Again, God's given us a moral bar, a bar of morality right, to live our life up to. We can't lower that bar. We've got to raise our kids to that bar. And again, remind them that God's grace forgives you along the way every time you stumble, but that it also comes with a call to grow. And some parents, again, like the ones I've quoted, have taken an active faith that once my child has hit rock bottom, then they'll turn to God or then they'll turn to me. But we look at the story of Adonijah and David. And in 1 Kings 1, 5 through 6, it says, David had never disciplined him at any time, even asking him, why are you doing that? Where are you going? <laughs> Where are you at all night? Why does it take you five hours to do something that should take five minutes, right? These are questions that he never asked him. 
Never once did David teach Adonijah the lesson of consequences for his actions. And perhaps he thought, like some parents and some youth leaders do, that I, I want to be this boy or girl's friend. I want to be my son or daughter's friend. You know, I want when they hit rock bottom that they'll be able to turn to me. So I'll just play good cop and, and we'll just see what happens. But if you don't lead, eventually your child is going to rise up and question your leadership. It's what happened with Adonijah. You don't need your kid to like you. You need them to respect you. You don't need them to like you as much as you need them to respect you. If they don't respect you, they don't love you the way they need to. And again, you look at the case of Adonijah. David didn't lead strongly, so eventually he, he questioned his leadership. He didn't come to David. He did the exact opposite. He tried to set himself up as king twice, and because of that, he was struck down in his youth. Another arrow that David had that missed the mark. But thank goodness for grace. And thank goodness that these stories in the Bible are there so that, you know, people say that experience is the best teacher. But sometimes we can look in the Bible and we can say, wow, those are principles that I need to put on my child. These are pieces of fletching that I need to put on their arrow so that they hit the mark. So even as we close, I'll just close with this thought. My dad, when he was fathering my household, he had four arrows. I got an older sister, a younger brother, and a younger sister. And it's only by the grace of God and his parenting that my brother's already an incredible father of two nephews, and I will one day hopefully as well be a good father. And it's only by the grace of God and the fact that my dad was an active parent. And my brother and I have joked for years about our first rated R movie. Like that was like a big step coming up because you know your dad just says no 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 and then eventually he's going to say yes there's still steps like for us and our family I don't know about your family it was a big step to be able to stay up on New Year's Eve till midnight and watch the ball drop and typically we would watch like a marathon of like Disney movies but then you know you get to a certain age and your dad's finally all right we're going to watch your first big boy movie right and my first big boy movie was Braveheart yes a, a bona fide classic and there were, you know, there's scenes you had to fast forward, but I was a young kid with a limited attention span, and this was two full VHSs, three hours of movie. I'm like, let's just fast forward to the battle scenes, and let me see what happens. I'm good, Dad, whatever. And I swear I woke up the next morning with the first hair on my chest. My voice was 10 levels deeper. I was talking like James Earl Jones. I felt like a man, right? I was ready to take on the world. The story of William Wallace was epic. So that's why my brother and I joke about our first big boy movie, because his first one was called Broken Arrow. Nobody's ever used the word classic in the same sentence as Broken Arrow. That stars the Christian Slater and co-stars the Howie Long. You rejoice. You stand up and applaud when Howie Long finally falls off the train and dies. I'm not spoiling it for you because you're never going to see it, right? <laughs> you start fast-forwarding that movie halfway through because you're like, when is it going to end? But we can't raise broken arrows. You know, children are, are arrows in the hands of their parents, and to every young person in here, you have a bullseye with your life. You have a, a mark that God has given you, a purpose, a calling, a destiny. And so often, rebellion is rooted in boredom. We have to realize that so often rebellion is just an attempt for young people to find a better plot. What they're being told in church, their youth ministry, their home. They're looking for something. Those misguided relationships, the dabbling in substances, so often it's them trying to find a better plot. It's like Paul again said to Corinth, I didn't just want to talk about it, I wanted to be in on it. Your kids are looking to be in on something. And let me tell you, fathers, one of the most sacred privileges you have is you can show your kids how to be in on it, how to walk in wisdom, how to walk with conviction, how to grow in grace, 
how to walk in the world with conviction and reach people for Jesus Christ, how to honor and love your spouse, how to make much of the name of Jesus. Those are some sacred privileges that fathers have. So when we take the arrows God has given us in our hand as fathers, what course are we setting them on? We can't control the circumstances, but we can impart biblical principles, fletching and feathers, that will ensure that when they leave our parenting and our home, that they will hit the mark. And may you go home with a renewed passion as fathers and warriors to fight for the future of your kids, to see them hit the mark. And may you remember four words. His grace is sufficient. Like Pastor Fred said, there's no perfect fathers, but there is a perfect God with perfect grace who enables us to parent the way we need to so that our kids can hit the mark. For every time you feel like you failed or you've fallen in an instant, remember David and Solomon. They failed hopefully worse than anybody in here ever will as fathers. And yet God's grace, by the grace of God, they were in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And I believe with every bone in my body that every father in here, as they lead with God's grace and biblical principles, that your children and generations beyond them will go on to make much of the name of Jesus Christ, to glorify God in their generation, to spark revivals. Come on, because of the grace of God. So come on, can I pray for every father as I close tonight or this morning? Lord God, we thank you that there are no perfect fathers, but we don't need perfect fathers because you are the perfect father. Lord God, that you've shown perfect grace. God, if there were perfect fathers, we wouldn't have needed Jesus Christ. Lord God, but we thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord God, that you can transform people. God, that you can grow us through your grace. So I thank you that you call men to be fathers. You give them the blessing of children. I love that the message version says that it's not just a gift, it's God's greatest gift. So God, we cherish our role as fathers and mothers and parents, Lord God. And we ask that just as you called us, Lord God, you would equip us, God, to lead our kids in a way that they will hit the mark. Lord God, in a way that they will hit the bullseye of glorifying you with their life. Lord God, help us not to settle for lesser bullseyes. Lord God, lesser targets, but help them hit the mark that you've given us, Lord God. The bar that you've set. And we thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week.